one of the things that I really like about the Beyond a Million framework is I'm focusing it on specifics that every business owner has to deal with. We all have to deal with sales. We all have to deal with marketing and operations in tech and how it all ties together. And if you're good at what you do, you're going to have to deal with the wealth component and the tax component. And so I find like, what do you need in the moment, right? What is your issue right now? Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm speaking with my longtime friend, Brad Weimert. Brad is an adventurer, investor, entrepreneur, and founder of Easy Pay Direct, a payment gateway touted as the most critical tool on the market to facilitate high-level e-commerce. What makes Brad's business so unique is how it manages what bigger processing companies like PayPal and Stripe would consider to be high-risk. While these merchant accounts allow you to get set up quickly, they fail to get to know your business. And the result can lead to holds on your money that you legitimately earned, or even worse, closing down your account altogether without notice. Easy Pay Direct solves this problem by underwriting on the front end and really getting to know your business and how it operates. Through that unique differentiation, Brad's company has been able to work with over 30,000 businesses and serves clients like Tony Robbins, Dean Graziosi, Hal Elrod, Grant Cardone, Frank Kern, and many others. Seeing the data behind so many companies over the years has given Brad a unique vantage point for what it takes to build a successful business. This experience has led him to launch the Beyond a Million podcast, a new show that uncovers the tactics and strategies behind seven, eight, nine, and even 10-figure businesses. In today's episode, not only do we talk about Brad's entrepreneurial journey and the new podcast launching January 20th, but we also dig into his investing experience and the most recent real estate deal that made him a multi-million dollar return in only two years. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Brad has a special offer for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. First, he's giving away his free report, Four Foolproof Tricks to Never Lose Your Merchant Accounts. Secondly, he's running a giveaway for his new podcast, Beyond a Million. For anyone who subscribes before January 26th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll be entered to win free prizes such as a MacBook Pro, iPad, AirPods, and Amazon gift cards. To get all the details, visit justindonald.com forward slash 65. 
Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Brad Weimert. What's up, Brad? So glad to have you on the show. This is fun. We've talked about this for a while, and uh, the, the day is finally here. It's good to see you, man. It's always good to see you. Yeah. Well, it's fun living in the same city. Just moving to Austin has been incredible, and it's great. You know, you and I, we've known each other. We've been friends for over 20 years. But what's cool is when you come back to a city, you reconnect with people. You were one of the first people to reach out and just say, hey, let's get some time in the calendar. And we just, we've had such a fun time just uh, diving deep and catching up and learning what's going on in each other's lives over the past five years that I've lived here. So I appreciate you for that. And, you know, th- there's so much that we get a chance to talk about and ideas that we bounce off of each other. So I just very much value uh, our friendship. I feel the same way, man. I think that one of the beautiful parts of life is the depth that comes from in the comfort that comes from knowing people for a really long time. And you get to interact in a different way because you know that they know you and they understand you and something about you that probably somebody that's been in your life for a shorter period of time does not. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about first impressions. That's, that ship is sailed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, hey, let me just be who I am authentically. And that's one thing that you're great at. You show up as who you are. You don't pull punches. And it's a beautiful thing because I, I know I can feel the authenticity that you have. You don't sugarcoat things and you don't say things that you don't feel or don't believe or, or the place that you're at. You're just very real with people. And uh, I really appreciate and admire that. Well, love it or hate it. That's how it's going to go. <laughs> and it's usually going to be one or the other. <laughs> that's great. Well, you have had such a cool story of success. And, and it's a series of successes that you've uh, experienced. And I'd love to kind of go back. I mean, we could talk about this huge business that you've built with Easy Pay Direct. And I want to get into that today. You've launched a new podcast. I want to get into that today. But before we talk about the, the Brad Weimert of now, I'd love to kind of go back and figure out like, how did you get this desire to be an entrepreneur, to be an investor, to be so lifestyle focused and oriented? Because you have one of the coolest lifestyles of anyone I know. You do all the stuff that you want to do. And it's fantastic. So that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show. That and many other reasons. But where this all began? Man, those are good questions. I certainly have kind of told the origin story a lot of times. But thinking about lifestyle design specifically is interesting. So we grew up... Every time I say I grew up, I think about the first scene of The Jerk. You ever seen The Jerk? Oh, yeah. Where he says, I was born a young black boy. (laughs) Always pops in my head. Uh, Anyway, I was not not born a young black boy, uh, but I was born a relative delinquent through most of my youth. So uh, I got arrested a lot of times in high school for menial nonsense. And then I found a commission-only sales job when I was 18. and that commission-only sales job is where I met you. That was Vector Marketing and Cutco Knives. And that was the beginning of the recognition that I was the one who was responsible for my outcomes. And if I didn't get my outcome, I was the one to point to, not anybody else. And it was this radical ownership of uh, my course. Uh, And I think that ultimately led me to this place of figuring out how to think about what industry I wanted to be in, what projects I wanted to invest in, and did it serve me in the different ways that I want. 
And, you know, that's a, a lifelong exploration, but I think that, you know, commission only sales where you eat what you kill, so to speak, was the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I interviewed Sam Marks and he talked about, you know, his kind of troubled past and he had been arrested however many times, four or five times while he was in college and went to go on to sell a company for a hundred million dollars. And it's interesting seeing that flip-flop story because that is you. You caused a lot of trouble in your younger years. You were definitely a rebel. You like to walk to the beat of your own drum. And there was a certain way that it was. And that worked in some instances and circumstances, but others it didn't. And there were some repercussions and the legal side of things got involved here. So at what point did you say, hey, I can't keep down this path. Like this isn't the way that I want to go. My aspirations are greater than this desire to tell people how it is and how I am. I don't think this is unique. I don't think this is necessarily Tony's uh, creation, but Tony Robbins has a, a concept of running towards pleasure or running away from pain. And I think that in this case, I just found pleasure in driving an outcome. And I, and I really greatly credit Corey Lilburn, who was my first, who's a good friend of both of ours and was my first Cutco manager for just managing me well, just encouraging me and having that positive energy to keep me moving forward. And ultimately that I found myself excited about growth because I was getting so much positive reinforcement, both from the people around me and of course, from money, from getting paid, which was a fun shift in my mentality of, oh, wait, I can just do more and I get more money. This is amazing. This is what I want to do. And I didn't have that sense, you know, as a child of if I just do more, I make more. It was sort of, you get paid X an hour and do that. So I think that, you know, running towards pleasure was the beginning of that. And over time, as I had goals year over year, it became more and more clear to me that these other things weren't the best way to facilitate that. And at some point, I realized that one of the best ways to facilitate it was relationships, was building strong relationships that would exist throughout life, regardless of the other things going on. And as times got great or got tough, or I went from one industry to the next, or I needed to learn one thing or the next, those relationships would persist. And that was the valuable element. And I think that that was like a, a light bulb moment for me many years ago. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's great to see what ended up trumping what, like relationships and getting ahead ended up trumping being in control or flexing yourself to authority. And so I like that. And I've seen this evolve in you over the years, the, the evolution of the type of relationships that you develop. A lot of people are surface level. Anyone that knows you knows you're not surface level. You, you don't even have time for that. Like you just go deep <laughs> immediately because what's the point of just, you know, talking about the weather or sports when you can actually get to the core of someone who someone is and you're you're fantastic at that. So let's talk about relationships a little bit more because I know you really value them. You take a lot of uh, pride and joy in those that you've built. You've been friends with so many people for a long time. And I've met a lot of your great friends who have become my great friends. And so what does that look like? How are you? You're very intentional when it comes to relationships and time spent and getting together. And I'd love to hear how you prioritize that, why you prioritize that. What, what do relationships look like in your world today? How do you keep them front and center? Yeah, it's tough at times, man. I think that 
you have to be deliberate in some capacity. I think it serves you to be deliberate in some capacity when you're trying to drive an outcome. And for me, there's a big conversation here around a sort of what you're looking for in your immediate future and what will serve you in your immediate future versus what will serve you in the long term, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now. And for me, with relationships, there's a lot of uh, what I look for are values and uh, how people operate, what their internal structure and narrative is and how they view the world and how they view their work and their family and their life. And I look for the things that inspire me, right? And sometimes those are things that I'm really good at and I can relate to. And sometimes there are things that I don't really relate to at all, but I'm impressed by. And they aren't a part of my life, but I'm impressed by. And the dance and the balance is figuring out uh, when to prioritize those things right now versus when to plant the seeds for the future and say, hey, this is a person that we don't have anything to do together financially right now. And quite honestly, it's inconvenient to carve out time because I feel so overwhelmed and busy. But man, there's something there that uh, I think I can add value to them and they can add value to me. We should spend time together now. Yeah, that's great. And by the way, relationships, I talk about this all the time, how relationships are the key to great uh, investments because most of the best investments are going to come from people that you have some sort, you've built a relationship with. They're, it's not like you... Retail investors typically don't do that well. And that's where you're just kind of picking something off the shelf, right? Uh, you know, Oh, I saw this deal. I know a bunch of people that are in this deal. Anytime I hear like, oh, I know a bunch of non-sophisticated or average or retail investors are in this deal, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go the opposite direction. But you recently had such a just a fun transaction. So you made an investment. Uh, this is a real estate investment. And this was a multi-million dollar return in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And so I love this component of your life because most people look at you as the entrepreneur or the extreme adventurer or extreme athlete. And we're going to get into all these things today because there's so much that makes up who you are, Brad. But I don't know if a lot of people look at you as the investor. And you've done very well with your investments over the last number of years. And this one specifically, I mean, this was a a grand slam, not just a home run. Bases were loaded on this one. Yeah, Uh, I'd love to hear you know how this happened because this deal, I think, a lot of people probably would say that was risky. And you would say, no, not at all. Like This was very calculated and this was low risk. And that's the difference a lot of the time between those that make big returns and those that don't. Yeah, I agree with you. So I'll give you a little wind up to answer that because I think there are parallels in my life all over the place. But my world is about risk assessment. And Inside, so Easy Pay Direct offers credit card processing for largely e-commerce businesses, but a variety of different types of businesses. And there's a whole a whole background of what makes something risky or not in e-commerce relative to us. But I think about it all the time. And one of the analogies that I use for people when I'm explaining risk in payments is I say, look, when somebody sets up a merchant account for you, what they perceive to be risky is not necessarily the actual inherent risk in your business. It's a combination between that and their understanding of your business. And the, the parallel and the example that I use is, you know, if you asked me to invest in a single family home in Austin, 
I'd have a pretty good grip on that. And I'd say, Hey, I can tell you, yes, I'll do this or no, I won't based on the numbers. If you said, Hey, I've got a logistics company out of China shipping widgets to the U S do you want to invest in it? I don't have any idea how to assess that. And it doesn't mean that that's more risky innately. It means that I don't have the understanding to assess it. So in this case, I bought an office building about two years ago, and the office building was governed by an HOA, a a community that had other condos. The office is a condo, standalone building, but a condo and zoned as business. When I bought it, I bought it for, let's call it 50% over quote unquote market value. And I did that. And by the way, it sat on the market and people looked at it and nobody bought it. And this is two years ago, right? So this is just before the pandemic. And I did it because it was a part of a three-story building in the center of downtown Austin. And logic told me that in an environment like this, a developer is going to buy this thing out. And even though I'm paying significantly more, at some point in the very near future, a developer is going to buy it out. And I'm a big fan of when I do risk assessment, looking at the absolute worst and the absolute best, and then recognizing that neither is likely to happen. So I don't need a contingency plan for the absolute worst, right? For the zombie apocalypse, I personally don't need to or want to, but let's step it in and I will contingency plan for that. And so my thought was, look, this thing's either going to sell to a developer in a year or the economy is going to turn and it's going to be another cycle and it's going to be eight years before I can sell it. Seven, eight, six, seven, eight, whatever. And I was okay with either scenario because I liked the building. My office was going to be in it. It's fine. There was no writing on the wall for me that COVID was going to happen. That was a a curveball, right? But it was clear as COVID started to resolve itself and we actually understood what it was that things popped back uh, and we got interest again from developers. We got interest from developers to build. Through that process, I just continued to buy into the community. And I was scooping, uh, scooping things up as quickly as I could anytime something popped and aggressively marketing to the community to buy additional units if possible, because I saw the writing on the wall. And I think you hit it on the head, which is some people look at that as risky. And I would say some people look at that as speculative investment. And I would challenge that frame and say, when you invest in a certain community, uh, a city, a state, a neighborhood, yes, there's some speculation there. But for you to not calculate the projected possible return based on appreciation is you're missing a huge chunk of the equation. So, you know, you can run your numbers without that, but I think you're, you're missing, missing the point. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I I think that you recognize you're in a hot market. So the market's likely just going to go up. We've had a real good history of that over a, a long period of time. Even the financial crisis the Austin market stayed very strong or at least plateaued. It didn't dip during that time. And so I think that's a great indicator. You got this huge housing demand and limited supply. Same thing for buildings in the downtown. So I think it was a brilliant play. Plus, you needed a place for your office. The last office you were in, that building was being torn down and and redeveloped. So you had to find somewhere. And it was cool because you found this. You got to spend a bunch of cash to like make it look nice. You built it out. You really did a great job making it look like a great place to to work, very modern and trendy. 
And it's cool because you could feel good pouring those dollars into it because you knew that it was going to appreciate more than what you spent on it. Sometimes people begrudgingly like spend on their business or they, you know, spend as little as they can. They go cheap and you didn't. You you did a good job of making it a really cool spot where you could even entertain on on the top floor of it, which was cool. So give us more details on the deal, how it went down, the process, what you're planning to do with those funds, because I think you're planning to do a 1031 so that you can defer taxes. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there. (laughs) I'll give you a couple other details on the acquisition of other units in the community, which is that one, I had to buy them cash because of the environment that we're in in Austin. So the first one that popped up that hit the market, I I had alerts set for the building on the MLS. And the first one that popped up was listed for 545. I made a full price offer in six minutes from it hitting the market because I got the alert immediately. We were ready to go six minutes. And the realtor said, okay, well, it was Friday. And they said, well, we're just going to see how the weekend goes. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I wish you wouldn't. Can you like, you're getting your asking price. Just take the asking price and let's go. And we tried to push a little to no avail. Monday, I had to modify the terms. And Monday night, I got the offer accepted at 720 cash, six-day close, no contingencies. Wow. So that's what had to happen to get it done. And then I financed out of it afterwards and you know it's fine. But And I'm, I feel grateful to have the ability to make those moves quickly. But I, I bought another like that also. But the, I think the, the big lesson was, again, I was in this position where I was, quote unquote, overpaying for those. But I knew two things. So again, looking at the worst case and the best case, one, I knew that on the exit, the likely exit on this thing, it was all, I just have such a big margin, it wouldn't matter. And two, even if the exit didn't happen for five years and I just sat on it and held it, the bleed on that still would be fine and provide a ridiculous return when it sold. So, you know, running the math on it and looking at the worst case scenario, it being vacant and not being able to rent it, and then also stepping in from that and saying, okay, well, I'm going to rent it. I'm just going to rent it for cheap. What do the numbers look like one versus the other? And am I okay with both of those? So I think that that was a big part of the, a big part of the math of the initial acquisitions. The 1031, then of course, the question of what you called out was, what do you do when you sell these things? And you've got, you're faced with capital gains tax or rolling them into another real estate project through a 1031 exchange. And there are nuances to that. Yeah, there's a big question, but there's definitely... I think what I can say about that right now is one of the deals that I got into immediately came from a good friend that quite honestly only would have happened from a good friend. And he said, look, I've got... I'm really heavy in commercial real estate right now. I'd like to get out of having such a heavy position in commercial real estate. You can buy into one of my newer commercial real estate properties for X and participate in the cost segregation for 2021. And so immediately after the sale, immediately after we inked a deal to move some of that money into this commercial real estate deal and took the cost segregation for the 2021 year to reduce taxes really heavily, uh, which is a huge deal. So that's a brilliant plan. And I'd love to just call this out to our audience here because 
One of the best things that you can do if you're looking to mitigate taxes in a legal way, in a way that the IRS says, hey, we want you to do these things because when you buy real estate or when you buy housing or when you buy businesses, uh, that is good for the economy. And so we want to give you perks in doing that. And so, you know, a lot of people look at the tax code as like, oh, it's the list of all the things you can't do. When in reality, it's a list of all the things you can do, should do, and it's what the IRS wants you to do, so they incentivize you to do it. And so let's talk about cost seg for for a moment, cost segregation. So what you're doing is you're basically creating a study. When you buy real estate, you get depreciation and you get it over a period of time. And each type of building is different, you know, uh, a commercial building versus, you know, let's say a mobile home park, you know, I think one is 27 and a half years, a mobile home park is 15 years. So you're already on an accelerated depreciation schedule, which is just money that uh, you get to deduct. It's just basically saying, hey, what you own is becoming older and isn't worth as much or is falling apart a little bit. It's, it's not as new and shiny. And so we're going to let you reduce your taxable income because of that. And with the cost segregation, you can do these studies where you package it into one year, the year that you buy it. And you get that full depreciation, or you can take as much of that depreciation as you need to offset your income, especially if you have the status of being an active real estate investor. Professional. Or an active real estate professional. Thank you. And so what then happens is you can offset active income with passive income. Otherwise, if it's just passive income, it's you're capped at like $3,000 or something. You got it. And so, yeah, so it's it's just an incredible opportunity. And like you, I did the same thing this past year where I was able to do cost segregation. I was able to take all of my active income and reduce that down because of the depreciation. Yeah. And so brilliant job there. Well, so this is the way that I think about it. And you've said this, this might just be different words, but the way that I think about it is, let's say that you have uh, a building that is a $5 million building. The cost segregation component is segregating what portion of that $5 million is going to depreciate over time. And in the case of a commercial building, you know, at some point you're going to have to redo the facade. And let's say a retail center, you're going to have to redo the facade you're going to have to redo electrical. You're going to have to re, you know, update the building, the parking lot, et cetera. And so the study, the cost segregation study goes in and says, hey, what percentage of the building can we actually say is going to depreciate like this? And they say, like, like Justin said, okay, maybe it's 15 years that it will take to depreciate that segment of the building. You have the choice of doing the depreciation equally over the course of 15 years or you can accelerate that depreciation and take the entire depreciation in the first year. And that entire depreciation amount, if you are deemed to be a real estate professional, which means that you spend 750 hours a year on real estate investment, which is 15 hours a week-ish, then you can take that against your active income. And now the, the only major caveat here, huge asterisk, is if you sell that property when you sell that property, you have to recapture the depreciation. So it can make sense to kick it down the curb if you're going to resell it in four years. But where it really makes sense is for commercial stuff that you intend to hold on to uh, in perpetuity and tend to hold on to for your life. 
Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional, but I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step -step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, great points. And it's just a, a fantastic strategy where, by the way, some people may not need all that depreciation in one year. Maybe right. their active income isn't that large, or maybe they're, you know, they have been able to offset most of their passive income. For years and years and years, I didn't have any earned income. I had no active income. All I had was passive income. So it was really easy to basically reduce what it was that I was making just based on the investments and based on the regular schedule of depreciation that I had. And so uh, I would have a very low effective tax rate because of that, because I I didn't have the highest type of taxed income, which is earned income or whatever you're paid, whatever your salary is, your hourly pay, whatever that is, that's your highest form of taxable income. And so to be able to avoid that or to have strategies to offset that, I think is uh, just wonderful. So hopefully that's a, a major takeaway and you've done a great job with that. I want to pivot here real quick because I want to talk about easy pay direct a little bit more um, because really the whole investment opportunity here that you were able to turn around, you made in a two-year period of time a multi-million dollar profit and you were able to do that in part because you had this business and you needed to house this business. So tell us about Easy Pay Direct. And I'm such a huge fan of Easy Pay Direct that probably the simplest way to describe it is that it is a better version of Stripe, right? It is, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of what you're doing, but it, it acts the same. It's a credit card processing company, but there are a lot of bells and whistles and perks that you guys have over a major tech company like Stripe. And so I'd love for you to be able to share and explain that. Yeah. So I'll uh, appreciate that. I'll give you the basic example is when any business owner that's interacting certainly with consumers has to accept credit cards today. And look, in a lot of ways, it would be great if they didn't have to pay the fees to accept credit cards. But the, the reality of the moment is that consumers like to use credit cards and they actually buy more when they use credit cards because they've got the float, right? So there are a thousand options for who you could work with to accept credit cards. There are two fundamental different models. One is like a Stripe or a PayPal. The other are traditional merchant account providers. And I'll explain the difference. But before I do that, 
if I don't explain this, people are gonna be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So as consumers, one of the cool things about credit cards is that anything that you buy at any point in time as a consumer, you can dispute. And so there's this security of, oh yeah, I can buy from this website because if I don't get the product, I can just call my credit card company and dispute it. And you actually have the ability to do that for six months after a purchase, for basically any purchase. There's some nuances, but let's call it six months. The first thing that happens when you do that is the money gets pulled out of the business owner's bank account. And then the business owner needs to fight to get that money back, to prove that that was a legitimate transaction, they did deliver the product or service, et cetera. Here's the issue. As when a consumer disputes a charge, if the business isn't there anymore, the credit card processing company needs to pay it back. So if the business files bankruptcy and closes the bank account, goes under, the credit card processor has to pay that back. That is the agreement with Visa and MasterCard. The more sales the business does, combined with the the likelihood of dispute and the likelihood of them going out of business, the higher risk it is for a credit card processing company because they're concerned that there's going to be a whole bunch of money that they're going to have to pay back after the business is gone, right? These refunds and disputes are going to come in after the business is gone. So Stripe and PayPal, the way that they work is you can set an account up in like 30 seconds. Now that's awesome because anybody can do it. But what that means is that they don't know who you are, what you do, how you operate, what you sell, how you sell it, how you deliver it, if you deliver it. They don't know anything about you as a business. So this concern about your business going under, they haven't mitigated that risk when they set up your account. So the only way they can control that risk is by freezing your account and holding your money or just closing your account altogether on the fly with no notice. So if you Google Stripe held my money or PayPal frozen funds, you'll find tens of millions of hits. Like it is everywhere. It happened to me. I'll just point that out. It happened to me on each. And uh, it's not like I have a weird or business that could be classified as, as anything other than education. Yeah. But both of them froze it for a period of time and I had to be able to prove what the business did. Yep. Yeah. And the, the, the challenge is, as you just pointed out, it doesn't even have to do necessarily with your specific business. It has to do with the industry that you're in. So, or the marketing model that you use. And in your case, education, you're both clumped in with people that are amazing in that space. And you're clumped in with people that sell horrible information products. And the reality is education is subjective. So if Warren Buffett took your course, he would have a different take than me taking your course, right? It's subjective. So the likelihood of dispute is higher in education. So the alternate approach to managing that risk is doing underwriting on the front end, right? It's getting to know who you are, what you do, how you operate, what you sell, how you sell it, how you deliver it. And the more that we know, the more comfortable we can be that you're not going to have a problem in the future. And if we suspect a problem in the future, we can assess it critically before doing something like holding money or closing the account, right? So, and that goes back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, which is, if we understand it effectively, we can manage the risk differently and we don't perceive it to be risky where a Stripe or a PayPal would. And in a lot of cases, the consumer or the business owner doesn't perceive it as risky. It just seems benign. Like, no, I'm just selling information. I'm just selling education. What are you talking about? 
So fundamentally, Easy Pay Direct leans in the latter camp, right? We want to be able to understand the business and position it appropriately. Now, what makes us unique is that not only do we believe that, but we also work with 25 different banks on the back end that allows us to pick the banking partners that really like, in your case, education, but maybe they really do not like supplement companies. So then we have banking partners that really like supplement companies, but would never touch you know, a $50,000 uh, mastermind group, right? So we're very good at, and that's kind of the, the high level, but we're good at optimizing those things and making sure that people both keep their accounts up and running and also make the most money possible when they're running their transactions. That's my rant. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I love getting the backstory and understanding what differentiates your company. And obviously, you guys have incredible customer service. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I'm just, I think the world of what you guys are doing. And I think there should be more companies out there that can help entrepreneurs understand this whole process and streamline it for them help them understand how to get this done. Because basically, what you do is it's necessary for virtually every business that exists. Yeah. And most businesses get frustrated. By the way, I have the same frustration with the banks because the banks can freeze oh, yeah. money, which I think that's happened to both of us at some point where our, our dollars have been frozen in our bank account for no reason, but just for the fact that they needed some answers. So you're guilty until you prove your innocence. It's, it's absolutely absurd. But we need companies like yours that can do the proper underwriting so that we can do business in the way that we need to do business so that we can collect payment and have access to the funds for transactions and things that we need to do without any issues, without any hiccups. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So let's have some fun talking about... I like fun. Yeah. So I'm going back and forth. I'm like, you've got so much fun, like adventure stuff. And I want to make sure that we get into that. But before we do, you've got a new podcast that is launching. Mm. And I'm so excited about it. We've been talking about you doing a podcast for like years now. And yeah. I'm so thrilled that you have started it. Your studio is incredible. I love it. We've done a, uh, an episode just kind of for fun. Yes. You know, in your studio. And I'm thrilled that you are unveiling this. So tell everyone about it. What are you doing? Yeah, well, I think for starters, like you said, I've been talking about it for a long time. And part of it is that, as I mentioned earlier, relationships drive everything else in life, period, life and business. So I just like having interesting conversations with interesting people. The catalyst in the, in the challenge in life is how do you get your personal interests to intersect with your equitable interests? How do you make money doing the stuff that's fun? <laughs> and what I realized was, that we've got, you know, we've got this amazing, we've had tens of thousands of uh, businesses come through the EPD pipeline, the Easy Pay Direct pipeline, and we only serve a portion of them. And there's only so often can I say, do you want a merchant account? You want a merchant account? How about now? You want a merchant account? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not doing uh, them service. So uh, we're launching a podcast called Beyond a Million. And it's tactics and strategies from seven, eight, nine-figure entrepreneurs that they're implementing today once they have an established business. So what's working now that wasn't necessarily working when they were on the climb up to a million in revenue? And it's focused in sales, marketing, operations, technology, and wealth building. So we've had... I've done about 20 interviews so far that we'll launch with some 
awesome people in a variety of different industries in those categories, sales, marketing, operations, tech, and wealth building. And it's an opportunity for both me to interact with people that I just am fascinated by and want to learn from, and also get really valuable information in front of business owners that uh, get to hear it from people that are great at what they're doing. And what's cool about my position is that we see all the financials in the back end. <laughs> so we know who's actually performing and who's not. And that's both a really fun thing in my life and a, a challenging one because privacy is such a big deal. And it's such a big deal for both Easy Pay Direct as a company, but just also me as a human. So there's always a line to be drawn. But what you can be sure of is that the guests that end up on the show know what they're talking about. I'll, I'll say it like that. Yeah, that's really great that you have that filter and you can say, well, I know I'm not going to have this person on the show in this category, but this person's crushing it. I have the proof that this person's crushing it. I see their sales every day. That is a really nice vantage point. You know, it's it's funny. One of my friends who I have invested with, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, guy. He does all this underwriting for all these companies and has structured a lot of senior secured debt because he understands the underlying uh, assets and he can properly collateralize. And so I remember saying to him, hey, with all this underwriting, with all the, the financial review and docs that you've done, you realize that you've got a platform to like actually create a really cool investment on the equity side, not just the debt side. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a great thought. I mean, Wow. You know, and so that's kind of like a new avenue, a new path because he's got this information right in front of him. And I feel like that's what you've got. And I think you and I maybe have even talked about this before, but you now know these numbers uh, from the standpoint of A, who should be on my show? B, though, who could use some investment dollars that you might want to invest in and partner with? That could be a really fun strategy. But I'm excited for your podcast because, like, what we're doing right now. This is such a blast for me. You and I, we'd go do this over some bourbon or a glass of wine or something. No problem. Uh, but it's fun to kind of like organize it and talk about all these cool things that we've, you know, kind of had. And by the way, we we are due for a celebratory dinner and toast to, you know, your amazing investment return. So we got to get that on the books. But I love that you can kind of have these celebrations with people each time you get together with them. And then you get to learn and grow with them. They get to learn and grow from you. You get to learn and grow from them. It's incredible. I mean, I love having you on the show because I'm learning so much just about the, the facets and nuances of your business that I never knew before, which is cool. Totally. And you know, I think that you hit it on the head. You know, We're going to have these conversations regardless. And one of the cool things about... Uh, one of the things that I really like about the Beyond a Million uh, framework is I'm focusing it on specifics that every business owner has to deal with. We all have to deal with sales. We all have to deal with marketing and operations in tech and how it all ties together. And if you're, if you're good at what you do, you're going to have to deal with the wealth component and the tax component. And so I find like we hit on this a little bit, but what do you need in the moment, right? What is your issue right now? And I was talking to a good friend of mine who asked me if I had read Ray Dalio's new book, which is The New World Order, I think is what it's called or something. Yeah, I think so. But it's about, macroeconomics. And I'm a huge fan of Principles, which is his first book. Huge fan. But I said, no, I haven't. And the reason I haven't is because I don't need to digest 
macroeconomic information at this particular moment. It would be more distracting for me than helpful because I have specific goals for this month, this quarter, this year. What I need to do is keep my head down and feed myself information around the areas that I'm focused on right now. And so what I like is like I've got these friends and clients that are really good at what they do. And in casual conversation, like we go have bourbon or wine or a a lunch, we're going to have stuff that's all all over the map, right? We're going to bounce around. And Beyond a Million is a deliberate effort to say, okay, let's, let's focus on what you're really good at and let's drill down on this one thing so that listeners can dig into it and say, no, no, I need help with sales right now, or I need help with marketing right now, or operations. And so it's a, you know, a different approach. And by the way, I love the just random miscellaneous conversations in there. It's impossible to avoid it, right? You're always going to end up with the, the navigating all over the place anyway, but that's the effort with it. Oh, I love it. That's going to be so cool. Uh, I can see that being one of the best podcasts out there. And uh, I have no doubt that you'll do an incredible job there. So very cool. Appreciate that. This podcast wouldn't be complete, though, without talking about some of the cool adventure trips and travel that you like to do. You're such an adventurer. And uh, you and I, we had this incredible experience with a mastermind event that you hosted in Fiji. And uh, I got a chance to go there, brought one of my good friends there as well, uh, Drew. And and, uh, he's a big time entrepreneur out of St. Louis. And then you had all these other great people. It's where I met Mike Koenigs for the first time. Uh, which is, you know, just an incredible connection we had there. But everyone that was there was amazing. Uh, and so I'd love for you to share some of your fire and and passion for travel. Sure. I uh, actually, a, a mutual friend, Carl Drew. Actually, you know what? You were there when this happened, the story that I'm telling. But I was at a charity event for the Front Row Foundation. And I think it was uh, 2007. It might have been the first event, uh, one of them, uh, but a whole bunch of our friends were there. You were there. Carl Drew was there. John Broman obviously was putting it on. And I'm walking around, and for whatever reason, I was having a, a, a sober night, which, by the way, is one of the least fun ways to do a charity event. <laughs> so I'm wandering around sober and having conversations with people, and I run into Carl Drew. And Carl is a friend who's a known adventurer. I mean, this guy has done all sorts of crazy stuff. And I said, Carl what's the next crazy thing you're doing? Uh, and he said, well, I'm going to ride my bicycle from Los Angeles to Boston. And I laughed at him and I walked away. And I started thinking, I know how to ride a bicycle. I could totally do that. Now, mind you, I had never been on a road bike in my life, but I knew how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> this is my logic. So long and short is a few months later, uh, I borrowed John Rulin's bike he shipped it to me from Ohio to Michigan at the time, disassembled. I assembled it and started training and ultimately rode from Los Angeles to Boston uh, on a bike. And that there's a long story there. And I think amazing stuff uh, happened there. But what I found was while I was on that trip, I was itching to get back to business. I was itching to get back to kind of building life, business, wealth. And then I'd get back to building it and I'd think, man, I need another adventure. And then I'd go on an adventure and then I'd be on the adventure and I'd think, ah, I really want to get back to the business side of things. And it was this push-pull for years. And ultimately, I realized that one of the major drivers, one of the things that I was looking for in the adventures was relationships. 
It was an opportunity to have a unique experience to drive a relationship. And, uh, and if I can do that with people that are doing similar things to me, i.e. other entrepreneurs, and that's not exclusive to that, but it's more likely with other entrepreneurs, man, that's the, that's the win-win, right? That's the best case scenario. So the Fiji thing was born out of that. And by the way, it's also the relationship with myself, right? It's, it's an opportunity for me to get to know myself better, depending on the adventure. So the last one, uh, I think, which is this came up the other day, but the last one was a run from one side of the Grand Canyon down and up to the other side, and then down and back to the beginning, which people call rim to rim to rim. And that last to rim is what makes it difficult. Rim to rim is a long hike. Rim to rim to rim in a day is a pretty intense ultra marathon. So that was the last one. And I actually did that with uh, an old Cutco guy, uh, Jason Jeffrey, who I did the bike ride with also. And that, I think the, one of the big lessons with that one, this recurring, uh, sort of recurring theme or problem, but when you do uh, long distance endurance, uh, inevitably you hit a point where A, you question why the fuck you're doing what you're doing <laughs> and B, whether you should keep going and C, you get emotionally raw and you end up maybe snapping at people or behaving in ways that you wouldn't normally, right? So this particular run, we had run down, we got up at 3.30 in the morning, we're in the dark, uh, it's relatively cold, and we're running down the Grand Canyon with headlamps on. And we run down, we get to the bottom, and we keep going. And about 14 miles into the run, we get to a really narrow uh, passage where there's just brush on both sides. And it's hitting me in the face. And so I've got my hands up to kind of guide my or block my face. But through doing that, I had stopped looking at the ground. And with one step, I landed on something and rolled my ankle. And when I rolled it, you know, the whole weight of my body went into that left foot and it rolled into something sharp, presumably a rock. And I kind of came off that step and hobbled. And in my head, I thought, okay, just run it off. It's fine. And a minute passed and two minutes passed and five minutes passed. And I'm with three other guys. So I just keep going. But I realized after five that this, this pain is not going away. <laughs> and as it turned out, I had sprained my left ankle and broken a, a bone in my left foot. But the moment you have a choice, right? In the moment, it, which is either I just keep going and, and largely keep my mouth shut about it, or I stop. And I had already made the choice ahead of time that I was going to do this. And I had not really adequately trained. I mean, I was in relatively good shape to do this. You know, I had done, I probably had a 20 mile base or something, but this is a 45 mile run. And uh, so I kept going. And 14 miles into the run, you know, I ran up to the other side. And we kind of paused for about 15 minutes on the North Rim. And as I did that, I took out a little compression sleeve that I had in my bag, put it around my left foot, and we rested for 15 minutes. And that was both needed and also very challenging because the leg and the ankle and the foot stiffened up. And as we started to go back down, the team wanted to run fast. So because they wanted to pick up speed at this point. So we start running down and I'm running in every single step I'm taking. My foot 
uh, is struggling to gain traction because it's loose dirt, loose soil and rock. It's super steep. And we're on the edge of the grand, quite literally the edge of a cliff, no railing, narrow roads. And for anybody that's been there, uh, these narrow, narrow paths in every step, I've got pain and I've got this grimace on my face for every step. And after about a mile or two, it warms up a little, I can move it more and it feels a little better, but it's still this really intense pain. And nine miles in from the top rim. So now I'm probably, you know, 32 miles into the run. It starts to level out and get flattish, flatter. And I realize that if I just land flat with my foot and there's no angle, no flexion in my ankle, it's less painful. So I'm now obsessively looking for this little chunk of land that I can land flat on with my left foot, which by the way, when you're running for that long, the last thing that you want to do is be obsessive about, you know, neurotic about your foot placement and also landing flat. You want to have rot- your roll in your ankle to be able to move fluidly. But I found some relief in that. And I think one of the major lessons is for me is your body will often keep up if your mind will, but your mind is very often the first one to go. And your body does pretty amazing things when you demand that of it. And I think that that's true in lots of areas of life. If you make a decision that you're going to do something, your body or your other behaviors will follow through with it. Man, that is just an incredible story and experience and just a great takeaway of of the power of the mind, the power of your mindset. Uh, 40 miles, 40 plus miles running, a lot of it at night, half of it with a broken bone and a sprained ankle. You know, I, I remember reading Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins and thinking, gosh, how's this guy running with broken bones? And you are that. You're, you're a version of David Goggins. So uh, I'm bowing down. I'm <laughs> giving you mad props. It's, uh, it's just impressive. And I know the basically the mountains that you've summited and some of the other adventures that you've done. I know you're on a, about to depart on a trip to Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, which is one thing most people in the world have never been there. I'm excited about that. Uh, So I think that's so cool. I mean, you are living life. You are a lifestyle investor. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on on the show, to call you a friend, to be able to hang out here on a regular basis the way that we're able to. Where can our audience find out more about you? Well, I definitely want to plug beyondamill.com. It's beyondamill.com. Dot com. We're doing a uh, January 20th, 2022, we're launching it and we're doing a big giveaway for anybody that subscribes to it, giving away a whole bunch of Apple stuff, a, a MacBook Pro, some iPads, an Apple Watch, all fun stuff to help celebrate the launch of the podcast. And uh, certainly Easy Pay Direct is easy to find and Brad Weimert on all the social things. Brad Weimert on the social things is a good way to follow my shenanigans and see where my adventure stuff is leading me. That may be the most entertaining of the things, though. I think that you know I'm pretty optimistic of uh, Beyond the Mill filling some of that void too, because we've got some really cool people. But it's definitely business focused. So if you want to grow your business, that's where you go. If you just want to watch me be silly and ambitious and get some motivation and excitement out of it, follow me on social. I love it. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here today, Brad. This has been an awesome interview. I knew it would be. I've been 
so looking forward to the time that we get a chance to share, at least with my audience, just the cool stuff that you're doing. So thank you. And I want to close things out today the way that I always do, which is this. Take some form of action today, whatever action it may be, one step towards a life of true freedom, financial freedom, financial independence, life on your terms, life by design. So think about that. What's the one step you can take today to live a life by design, not by default, and one step closer to financial freedom? Thanks, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.